where we've been, how we've been, and how we doing. You're listening to the Dental Student Vibes Podcast, where it's all about good vibes. I'm your host, Seth Kalish. Today, we had an amazing, amazing guest on, Dr. Mark Costas. Uh, Dr. Costas is an international keynote speaker and the founder of the Dental Success Institute, which is a company committed to helping dentists achieve their full potential while recapturing their passion for dentistry. He's also the co-founder and CEO of the Dental Success Network, a vibrant community of dentists from around the globe focused on maximizing access of advanced clinical and practice management education to the profession. Dr. Costas is the international and number one Amazon bestselling author of the book, Pillars of Dental Success, which we've all read here, and his internet radio show, The Dentalpreneur Podcast, now has listenership from over 150 countries worldwide. We're so grateful to have Dr. Costas on our podcast today. Uh, We learned so much from him. We talk about everything from first starting out as a new grad, getting your first job, all the way until purchasing your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth practice. And Dr. Costas really gives a lot of insightful information. We really appreciate having him on. As always, hit us up on Instagram at dental.student.vibes and on Twitter at DSV Podcast and on Facebook at Dental Student Vibes. Thanks for listening. We hope you guys enjoy this podcast. We sure did. Thanks, guys. All right. So Dr. Costas. One of our uh, students, a third-year dental student, Josh Ospina, he's actually the president of the business club. Uh, he wanted to ask you, how do you know when it's time to actually start your practice? You know, a lot of us are going to become associates coming out of school, uh, you know, just to get our hands wet, get our speed up and all that sort of thing. So how do you know when it's time to get that loan and start your practice? Yeah, a lot of times the, the bank makes the decision for you, but I will tell you that in, in what I mean by that is uh, many banks require a full year of um, historical production so they can take a look and see what type of producer you have been, um, the type of clinical, I guess, offerings that you've managed to master. Um, so that that's a big part of whether or not you're going to actually be able to qualify for the funding to purchase a practice. But in rare cases, people get right out of dental school. They have private money. Maybe a a family member or a friend helps finance their first venture, or they find a local bank that's willing to um, willing to extend, you know, maybe a a little bit higher interest loan in order for them to to get into a practice right out of dental school without any real world experience. But I will tell you, you know, I associated for a year, and that was probably one of the most valuable years uh, that I spent. Um, and that was because I learned how to to build up my speed. I learned right. how to see, you know, multiple columns of patients and be able to do hygiene checks at the same time. So if you guys picture your day is, you know, one operative or restorative patient in the morning and then one in the afternoon, right, right. you know, I see, I see probably four when I'm when I'm working in a practice I'm seeing four patients in the first 45 minutes two two restorative patients and then two hygiene checks and that's all day long so that's a huge huge uh, difference from dental school and you know that that first year of associateship really is valuable for being able to to, to gain your confidence build up your speed um, and really just kind of 
learn the ropes of the basics of being in private practice versus an educational environment. So I would recommend either a really good hands-on AEGD or GPR where you're intentional about selecting one that focuses on the clinical procedures that you want to practice when you when you get it out into the real world. Right. So maybe IV sedation, maybe advanced surgical procedures, uh, maybe it's periosurgery, maybe it's kids, whatever floats your boat, whatever um, is important to you if you want to practice general dentistry, find a, a residency that focuses on that or those particular um, clinical procedures and sink your teeth into those or find a really good associateship where it's higher volume mm-hmm. and you have the opportunity to get mentored in clinical speed and increasing your clinical effectiveness and your cl- clinical suite of offerings and a little bit of business um, mentorship at the same time. Okay. So you would say that, um, I guess, really focus on the mentorship and the, and the patient flow as an associate rather than, you know, just focusing, oh, I'm going to get this percentage of production or any, any of that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, speed is a, a really important thing and it will develop in time, but if you rush it and you try to focus just on production in the beginning, um, you're going to make unnecessary mistakes. So take the time to focus on patient care first. Gradually, your speed will increase. And uh, yeah, just find a, an associateship where you can get some great mentorship. Find, you know, if, if you are, if they're going to throw you out in the middle of a rural area for, you know, working for a DSO and right. you're by yourself, you're not going to get a whole lot of, of great experience because you don't have a mentor. You don't have somebody that's giving you tips as far as how to, to increase your speed. Um, and your efficiency. Uh, so yeah, find, find yourself a good mentor uh, situation, a good associateship or a great, um, you know, residency. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic information. Um, I know uh, you've, uh, I, I guess for the majority of your career, you've had, uh, you're just practicing all kinds of dentistry right now. Um, did you ever consider going into a specialty or were you set on uh, general dentistry uh, when you came out of school? Yeah, I did consider it. I, you know, if you guys know my story, it took me three years to get right. to dental school. So I was getting my master's in business at the time, but uh, I was three years behind the rest of my classmates. Basically, I was one of the one of the older kids in my class, and you know, I I really felt as though I had some some ground to make up. So it wasn't a luxury that I could kind of entertain. Um, but I'll tell you this my grades weren't good enough to make the oral surgery residency that I wanted to get into anyway. So okay. um, uh, my senior year, I was lucky enough to work in a Medicaid clinic my senior year of dental school. I finished all of my clinical requirements my junior year. They allowed me to be an extern and get paid to be a student dentist nice. in wow. real life practice. <laughs> and uh, so I took out teeth. I did all the oral surgery anybody could ever want to do. I took thousands of teeth out and did, you know, uh, removable and, um, and amalgams. So I, I really had my residency uh, was my first, my last year of dental school, which worked out great for me. So if I was to pick anything, it would have been surgery. But you know, adding another four or six years to my already three-year delay wasn't really feasible for me. I was already married uh, by by the time I had graduated. Right. I mean, I, I had a I had a master's degree. Kasim here had a. Uh, post back, so we're a little bit behind. I'm 25. Yeah, just, just turned 27. 27. Last week. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. Kasim, that's how old I was when I was a freshman as well. Ah, there we go. We have something to relate to then, right? <laughs> so, it was, you know, so it's funny. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because that was my thought process as well. Because I'm not sure how much I have left in the tank to do an additional four years or six years because it's just so time consuming. And then you it just really want to. Yeah, you know, and, and it depends on how effective you are in that four years, right? I mean, I did I did the math with uh, the Armed Forces Scholarships, and I, I, I really, really admire the people that were able to do that. And then also the people that ended up specializing. And, you know, I, I did the math, and I was like, okay, I need to make X number of dollars and, and always make this amount of money to make sure that, you know, I stay ahead or at least up with the people that got debt repayment or... Um, had a greater uh, income stream as a specialist than I would as a general dentist. So I said, you know, I have to get out of the gate making $250,000. Right. That's yeah. the lowest I could ever dip below. So my first year I made two fifty, and it, it's never dropped below that. Wow. But, you know, but I'll, I'll tell you that right when my friends that were orthodontists got out, they were making three hundred. you know, the first year out, but they were they were in residency for that for that period of time. So you have to do the math and see what's best for you. And also, you know, it's not just about the money. If, if you are super passionate about uh, dropping implants and perio surgery or working with kids, you know, don't look necessarily at just the the uh, the possible career income potential. Look at look at what floats your boat. Look at what makes you really, really interested in what you're passionate about. Right, right. And I mean, obviously, you know, we're all pretty worried about our student loans. I'm going to be coming out. It's going to be somewhere between four hundred, five hundred thousand in debt. So it's going to be. Uh, I mean, money's definitely on my mind, <laughs> trying to pay that off. So. Yeah, yeah, and it, it is a reality for students that didn't used to be a reality. You know, I, right. I graduated with two fifty. It's all gone now, but I graduated with two fifty, and and some of some of my classmates that had gone to private school for undergrad as well were closer to 350 but you know you guys are in a different realm you guys are 400 to 700 i have i have some colleagues that i work with that are six hundred thousand dollars in debt and they're they're four years out already um so you know my view on that is that it's not insurmountable you know we have the ability to generate a lot of income in our chosen profession and you can pay that off in a, a reasonable amount of time, but and and even you know if you if you stretch it out, you can have a great lifestyle and still maintain high levels of student loan debt. It's it's all right. Yeah. Um, but the bottom line is, you guys have um, higher stakes than we did. You can make fewer business mistakes and fewer mistakes about savings and and income allocation. You have to come out. A fair, a fair bit more sophisticated than we were, than my generation was, we were able to make more financial mistakes than you guys are. You guys graduate with $400,000, dollars in student loan debt and you, you buy the wrong practice and lose oh, yeah. a couple hundred thousand dollars, or you overspend on a house and your house poor and your $500,000 in student loan debt, you gotta be, you gotta be really, really smart um, about you know, your finances and come out with a fairly sophisticated um, uh, understanding of business. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's what we got the podcast here for. That's why we started it. We're trying to learn and we're trying to get prepared for when we graduate. 
We're trying to help. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Good, job. Uh, good, on, good on you guys. Good job. Thank, thank you. Dr. Costas, I have a question from you from uh, another student, actually. Um, so just to like touch on what you were saying about like your first year as, um, after you graduate, what, what are the first steps that you would recommend dental students should take after graduating? Like, let's say maybe like six months or a year, if there was any kind of goals or anything that they should be achieving after graduating from dental school. Yeah, I just got this question on one of the uh, one of the Facebook forums. Uh, great, great question. I'm glad that you guys are thinking ahead. I would start thinking, you know, my senior year of dental school, I would try to get as many of my clinical requirements done as early as possible and try to use at least the tail end of my D4 year to get as much continuing education as possible. And that is in the realm of practice management. Um, business and in clinical procedures. So there are tons and tons of advanced surgical courses that you can take as a D4 student that are going to be half price or free for you guys. And if that's what's interesting to you, get as many of as many reps as possible, placing implants and and even if it's over the shoulder training, just being able to immerse yourself in the clinical um, uh, clinical procedures that you're interested in. So right. as much of that as possible, and that goes for after graduation as well, you know, six months to a year, learn how to be, learn how to, I don't know, uh, do IV sedation, learn how to do sinus lifts, learn how to do all on fours, as many of those things that you can, uh, as many of those skills that you can put into your toolbox, the better off you're going to be for the rest of your journey. And if that means getting another $25,000, dollars $40,000 in debt in addition to what you have, that will be the best ROI that you ever spend, right? So right. if you're scared to spend an extra twenty-five dollars to $50,000 in advanced education right out of the get, um, you're going to be doing crown and bridge and composite restorations your entire career. Right. And you I just have to get it out of the way, do as much of that advanced clinical stuff as you can as early as possible, along with developing that business acumen, and you will be at a whole other level um, beyond your peers. Absolutely. And I remember on one of your previous episodes, I think you were talking to a fourth year student and you told them, uh, instead of putting $50,000 down on a house, put $50,000 down on CEs. It's a long-term yeah. investment, right? Oh my gosh, it is so true. And if I, I guarantee that in two years, you will double that investment and you will not double $50,000 of an investment on a down payment on a house. I'll tell you that. Right. In that amount of time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so one of the other things, speaking about uh, past podcasts that you had, um, I know you have Alistair McDonald on a lot. And yeah, so he remind, his silky smoothness reminds me of Kasim's voice. <laughs> there you go. I love it. There you go. So he's always talking about um, this upcoming economic dip. So, you know, obviously, you know, the market cycle is they're predicting that it's supposed to be sometime this year, next year, next couple of years, who knows? Mm -hmm. But um, how, how do you plan to address the upcoming economic dip? Yeah, good question. Um, I've already made adjustments. I've liquidated two practices, uh, two of what I call underperforming assets, and I merged another underperforming asset with, with another practice that was within three miles. So I have, I have went, I've gone from 10 practices to seven, I sold two pieces of real estate that I think are at the peak now and will eventually dip. 
and I've reallocated that cash. I've, I've um, liquidated in that area. And I had um, an offer on a $4 million, uh, 50,000 square foot building, the building that uh, houses one of our training facilities. And I decided to continue leasing instead of, uh, instead of purchasing that building. Mm-hmm. I'm just going, not that may end up being a bad decision, but right now um, I feel as though cash is king and liquidity is important for my peace of mind right now. Because I do know that when things slow down and if there is a dip, whether or not it's a severe dip or if it's, if it's just a mild correction, I know that, there, that things are going to be for, they're going to be on sale, right? Real estate's going to be on sale. Uh, practices are going to be in distress that I'll be able to purchase. And if I'm in a good liquid position and, and I have a fair amount of cash ready to deploy in the bank, right. I'll be able to make more nimble moves. There you go. Oh, yeah, there you go. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Dr. Costas, just to follow up on that kind of question, um, you're very you're very established in your community. You're an established professional, so you're able to kind of plan for these kind of things. Um, how should new dentists um, start planning, especially as they're hoping to become new practice owners for this upcoming economic dip? Yeah, see, uh, this is a really important point, and I do believe that it's important to allocate your income correctly, right? So people always ask me. And there's no single right answer, and people are going to disagree with me as far as my as far as my answer here. Um, but I do believe that there is a certain amount of liquidity, just just like I mentioned, that you have to maintain. I truly believe that you have to have an emergency fund, and personally, I believe that that's at least at least three months of personal overhead that right. you have to have in a savings account somewhere. Um, beyond that. If you own your practice, you should have three months of monthly break, what we call monthly break even in the bank somewhere. So once you fund those accounts, then you can get aggressive about paying down your student loan debt. Then you can get aggressive about dumping money into your 401k or your retirement accounts. But not until then. First, take care of your emergency um, emergency funds and make sure that those are properly funded. Um, uh, and then do what you will, you know, um, make the choices beyond that. But if you guys have heard my story, I've got, I've had two major back surgeries. Um, one on my L5 S1 down in my lower back okay. and one on my C7 T1 where I have a, a plate and four sh- screws. I was, I have a fusion up there mm-hmm. and because of my financial position at the time, I wasn't liquid enough, even though my net worth was high, I, I didn't have enough liquidity. I didn't have the option to not work because you had to go three months before your disability insurance kicked in, right? So right. I worked straight through it. I took a total of nine days off in two back surgeries when they, they said I should have taken six weeks weeks off for each. So oh, I, truly, I truly believe that you've got to have a, a fair amount of liquidity in the case of an emergency. Right. And, um, you know, the bottom line is you've got to keep the roof over your head. you got to keep... Uh, the lights on and you have to keep um, you know food on the table for your family beyond that all else is all else is um, is secondary yeah no I'm, I'm glad you brought that point because I think it's really easy to lose sight of what if this happens or what if that happens uh, but I'm gonna kind of change gears a little bit so uh, I know you were quite aggressive when you came out of school and you acquired multiple practices and then um, 
a few of us had the chance to go to a national leadership conference in Chicago last year and listen to a couple of speakers um, who had talked about their experience of acquiring practices. Uh, my question to you was, um, you know, after purchasing a, a first practice, when's the right time? Is there certain things that you should look for when you're thinking about purchasing your second practice or your third practice? Yeah, I mean, demographics is really important in the selection of a location, whether or not you're doing uh, a startup or an acquisition. Demographic research is paramount. It's super important. But as far as when, if you have a single practice and the practice is underperforming in any way, uh, we have this thing that we call a systemization score. How systemized is your practice? Do you okay. have an operations manual? How systemized are, are your scripts? How systemized is, uh, is your onboarding process and your recruiting process? Any number of things, we have a whole checklist that you go down and you do a self-assessment on a scale of one to five. How systemized are you? We make sure that if you are contemplating going on to, to uh, from single practice ownership to multiple practice ownership, your systemization score should be an 80% or greater and your overhead should be 55% or lower. And you have to have a decent growth curve and you have to have good cash flow and liquidity in the bank, like I just spoke about. Right. Once you check off all of those uh, marks on the checklist, then we start doing demographic research for practice number two. We don't even look at practices until your single practice meets all the criteria for being a solid flagship practice, meaning it is going to be the model at which you're going to uh, model the next two, three, five, ten practices after. So if you are looking at multiple practices and you have 65% overhead and you don't even have an operations manual, I say go back to the drawing board, make this practice as perfect as you can, make it the perfect model for replication, and then look for number two. Right. So what do you think about, I mean, I've heard everything you said about making all the systems uh, and especially for the operations manual. What do you think about starting to get that written uh, before we graduate? Because I mean, we're we're on top of this already. We've got systems created for our podcast. Like we have, you know, templates made. Everything is pretty streamlined, and we're we're really trying to get on this whole systemization uh, train. So, what what would you suggest about doing that? Yeah, man. I mean, if you guys can start putting the framework together for this hypothetical practice that you will someday have, that'll be very very helpful. But you know, I do believe in authorship of the foundational principles, the mission, vision, core values with the team that you've assembled. Um, have an idea of what you want your core values to be, but your team, your eventual team will need to help with authorship on that front. Okay, you know? okay, so that makes sense. And so, and the foundational principles are a huge part of the systemization process as well, because every system that we put together, um, we write with the core values in mind, like the script on how we answer the phone mm -hmm. has to has to reflect what our core values are. You know, what we say to a patient when they walk into the physical facility for the first time has to reflect our core values. You know, if we're talking about um, monthly performance reviews for the team, the core right. values have to be inside that document as well. So it's not that you can't get started and, you know, have the template ready to plug and play, but it's going to be really important that the team has authorship in the foundational principles, which is the first part of the, the systemization process. Right. That's really good to know. I, I didn't even consider that. So, yeah. um, Dr. Costas, in your book, you mentioned 
how um, there are three pillars uh, to maintain your staff and the culture and your practice. Would you mind just going into those real quick before we go into other topics? Sure. I mean, recognition is a huge thing. Uh, making sure that we're recognizing people. It's, it's, I mean, there are countless studies that prove that people are, um, people believe that recognition and uh, being uh, applauded for hard work and uh, being recognized for uh, their contributions to the overall organization is more important than financial incentives. So the vast majority of the people think that they want to make more money, but really all they want is to, to work in a purposeful environment. If you can create that with a strong culture, super, super important. Again, they have to have authorship in and believe that they um, are an important part of steering the ship, that they are, that they actually um, contribute to the overall goals in the organization. That's really, really important too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, aside from that, they need to be compensated correctly as well. That is is something that that we believe uh, in strongly. In fact, um, we like to strive for our teams to be the highest compensated teams in our area. And the only way that we're able to do that is that we're able to find overhead percentage points in different parts of the P&L. Right. So if we are able to drive revenue to a certain degree and decrease expenses to a certain degree, fixed and variable expenses, then that allows us to pick up percentage points um, in the staff salaries. Right. So our total our total staff revenue or I'm sorry, our total staff expenditure can be higher than other practices in the area because we'll be able to pick that up in things like lab fees and dental supplies and yeah. office supplies and we'll be able to drive revenue enough so that the fixed expenses drop as well absolutely now i think uh, you know when you're talking about expenditure uh especially with lab fees and things like that i know uh you know dentistry is such a progressive field when it comes to technology um and i know 3d printing is kind of taking off a little bit have you started to implement that into your office yet or are you still kind of waiting to see how the quality turns out no, I believe in 3D printing completely. We just recently got our CBCT, our cone beam. Uh, we, I put it in a van because I have six practices. Well, <laughs> five, five, five practices within a drivable distance here in Arizona. So we actually share the CBCT machine. Uh, our next step is to get a 3D printer so we can make our own surgical guides, so we can drop implants without sending the surgical guides off to uh, a manufacturer. That's going to help, but just having the CBCT helps quite a bit. We now have an iTero scanner so that uh, we're slowly starting to, to move away from traditional impression material. So, yeah, we, we totally believe in 3D printing. I believe in all of that stuff. Uh, we haven't gotten into the ortho workflow yet, but, um, but uh, we eventually want to get there. So, yes, we're embracing that technology for sure. All right, Kasim. That was an absolutely amazing conversation with Dr. Costas. We're so grateful to have him on. What did you think of that interview today? That was like unbelievable because you read his book, you listen to his podcast, right. and you get so much information from that. But the fact that we had the chance to sit down with him and get so much high-yield information that's going to be so beneficial for all of us dental students you know, in the future, pre-dental is included as well. It was just fantastic. What a great experience. He, I can't be more thankful to him. Right. He is an awesome guy. The man, the myth, the legend. Dr. Mark Costas. 
So again, we want to thank you. We want to thank all of our listeners for supporting us and for supporting our podcast. Uh, be sure to hit us up on Instagram at dental.student.vibes, on Twitter at DSV Podcast, and on Facebook at Dental Student Vibes. Thanks again for listening, guys. Take care.